0: turn to Genesis 38. I told Mike at first, well, we may not read this and it's kind of a longer portion, but some of you probably didn't study this in Sunday school. And so it might be good to just kind of give you a context, what we're going to be studying. And then I will, as we move through the passage, uh, probably not read every part of that. So we'll just read, I'll I'll read this for you. And then uh, again, it's Genesis 38 and we'll begin to study it. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son. She called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judas said to Onan, Go unto your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for, for your brother. But Onan knew the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to, her, to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judas said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shewa's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, Your, brother, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you that you may come into me? He answered, "I will send you a young goat from the flock." And she said, "If you give me a pledge until you send it." He said, "What shall I pledge to you?" She replied, "Your signet, and your cord, and your staff that is on your is, that is on your hand." So he came, so I mean, so he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judas sent the young goat by his friend the adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he said, the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. When the time of labor came, there were twins in the womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand. And his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe be seated. there are several chapters in the book of genesis that are quite difficult to kind of understand contextually why they're there chapter 34 and the in chapter 26 kind of in the beginning chapter 34 towards the end and then chapter 38 here it kind of doesn't fit in the context you read it as much you feel like They just kind of took a break. And sometimes we would say, maybe you've been to different things where where there's an interlude in between a dramatic kind of presentation. And it's kind of like that, but it's giving you critical understanding as you're moving through to kind of something that you need to know and that you need to understand and that will really be picked up all the way through the Bible and and it has a lot of fulfillment in it. And so I think it's important to to say that. Now, another thing just to say is, uh, I remember David Jeremiah saying one time when I was listening to these many years ago, he said, this is like, the worst chapter in the Bible. And it's not, in one sense you say, uh, it's not the worst in the sense that like it's God didn't inspire it or that, but it just all this, the story is like, are you kidding me? I mean, is this really taking place? Like, what is going on? I mean, why would God give us this? I mean, there's a lot of things you have questions about. And really, if you're a little kid growing up in Sunday school, usually if you were told the, the coat of many colors story about Joseph, somehow they decided to skip Judah. And you, you could understand why. Why would they skip him? Because, I mean, it's not like the most exciting story to tell uh, children and say, hey, listen to this great story about Judah. It's not something you could say. Model Judah is this model person that you want to live your life after. I mean, there's a lot of things that go on. And sometimes if you've gone to like a prim and proper church, they don't want to talk about They You just want to stick on the superficial. You don't want to go down and say, okay, let's look in the heart. And not only that, here's the thing. Most of us would say if we read this story that we know some crazy things like that that have happened. We maybe have lived them. Or maybe we could say they're kind of in our family. It's not things you want to talk about. There are elements of this that go on all around us. And so I think it's important to not just kind of say, well, we don't know anything about this kind of thing. We've never experienced anything bad like this. We've never seen anything like this. It's just so crazy. We just can't believe it. I think that's not honest. So in this story, I think you have it's filled with rebellion, wickedness, greed, hypocrisy, deception at many fronts, and God's grace. And I think it's important that we put that together. If you were an Israelite, you were reading this, you could say, God can accomplish His plan of salvation even though Israel's even though Israel is disobedient, and there's a Canaanite woman who deceives them it's kind of one of those things where you say God is going to do His work regardless. And again, I think another thing you could say is God is saving His people because of His choice to save them, not because they deserve it. He chooses to save a people for Himself and they are not always people that you would say they're praiseworthy. The one that's praiseworthy is God. He is the one that you honor and adore and praise and give thanks to not the people. He is the key actor, and he is the one who always steps in and rescues horrific situations, and oftentimes in ways you would never dream. And if a Jewish reader was reading this, and he sees this Canaanite woman kind of come in, all of a sudden, and and salvation at some level comes through her, it would be somewhat like, oh man, are you kidding me? How could God highlight that of all things? God is not opposed to showing the black eyes of His people so that you might see Him as the one who saves. I just think it's important as you read this and think through this. So let's begin this morning. I just want to stop one more thing and say this. The only other thing so far in Genesis that we know about Judah is that when he and his brothers in concert together decide to grab their brother Joseph and throw him in a pit, And then they sit down for a nice little meal, probably stealing Joseph's bag of food that he had with him. Thought they'd eat. No, I don't know what they did. But they sit down. They're eating together. Joseph's crying out, get me out, get me out, get me out. Judah looks up and from a distance he sees these traitors coming and he says, hey, let's not kill our brother. Instead, let's sell him into slavery. He kind of leads in that way. And so you kind of are left with Judah's the ringleader uh, at some level. And he says, hey, let's do this. And they do it. And then it stops. And you go to chapter 38. So as we start this morning, we're looking at verses 1 through 5. And we see Judah leaves his family, makes friends with the Canaanites, marries and has children. That's kind of what's unpacked here in verses 1 through 5. But in verse 1, the idea of Judah leaving his brothers. We, we've seen Ishmael leaving his brother. We see uh, Esau leaving the brother. We saw Cain moving away from the family. He, he's he is, he is, there's an element there where he is leaving the people of God and moving in with the ones that would be the enemies of the people of God, the Canaanite people. And another thing, I mean, it's just important. I think it's important to say that. And he says his friend named Hiram. He he begins to build his life with them. Not too long ago, we were looking at Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. The idea here is Judah is not walking in wisdom. He's just not. He is not walking in the way that you would say, this is the way that you should walk. He is walking in opposition to that. He is making friends with wickedness. He is dwelling among those who God will eventually completely destroy, And so that's what you kind of move in that way and you think, okay, now the other thing is is he marries among those people. He marries among them. He is beginning to make a, an, an unholy alliance with them. And I think it's important to note that because what's going to happen is, as we've read the stories previously, another reason why we read the whole book of the Bible, you find out that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, none of those men, none of the patriarchs marry among the Canaanites. It's very purposeful to show that. So that Judah is stepping outside of that. I think it's just important that you note that, and he's moving away from the people of God. He is making an alliance with the people that are rebels towards God. I mean, very, very rebellious towards God. And then he marries among them, and he begins to have children, and he has three boys. So I think you just say, look, he is a prodigal son. He has thrown off the wisdom of his fathers, and we know as it sets the stage, there will be catastrophic results for that. So this thing is important as you set the stage in your mind. Now verses six through eleven, Ur and Onan, his two oldest boys, die. Judah blames their this woman, Tamar, and preserves his youngest son. So verse six is kind of as you're looking at this, we understand that this firstborn, it's time for him to have a wife, and Judah chooses again, for him again, they're they're making these alliances with these people. He chooses among the Canaanites to get him a wife now what do we find out ur is wicked says he's wicked in the sight of the lord he is a man does not walk in the ways of god there's an element where you're saying he's following in the footsteps of his father he just exceeded him and so as you're looking at that you kind of unpack that now here's the thing this is the first time recorded in the bible that god kills an individual I mean, just individually. Now, no doubt we looked at the flood. God is not opposed to judging wickedness. He destroyed all that lived on the whole earth and only preserved one. But here is like this one person pointed out, even Cain was not killed immediately by God, but Ur is killed here, and we see that very clearly. He is wicked in the sight of the Lord. James 2 says this, 2.10, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. I just want to make that point that the, the the wages of sin is death but God God and, and there's no doubt like if you just committed one sin it is enough for you to be judged eternally and to be damned just one if you broke one of God's commandments it is as if you broke all of them in the sense that you are going to be punished eternally if you do not find your refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ who was punished on your behalf So I think it's important just to stop there and say it, but not only this, to say, listen, there are wicked people walking around this earth all the time that God allows them to live. He doesn't immediately kill them. I mean, we see here there's this idea of capital punishment. God is taking the life of this man for his sins. And God is unpacking that for us very clearly. But I just say that to say, look, there's a lot of people that are wicked that God does not kill. But what we would say is this, Ultimately, all will face the punishment of God. But with Ur, it must have been so horrific that God said he's done. And the reason I think that's important just to kind of to see that is this is, is there are laws in God's law as you read like Leviticus and stuff. There are several. I think there's I mean, I don't I don't think there's ten. There may be law things where somebody commits this sin and it is God says, You, you kill them. Their punishment, they deserve punishment that kind of punishment. So it must have been wickedness at a great level. And then after he dies, his father comes in and says to, to Onan, he says to him, "Do your duty as a brother-in-law and we I want you to get your brother's wife pregnant. So go into her and get her pregnant because his offspring he he needs an inheritance among our people." And that was something very common. Now, one of the things just to note here, this is in God's law too later in Deuteronomy 25. He speaks of this to them and He unpacks that. And He says that if this happens, if if a brother dies without a son, that the next son in line should take her and he should go into her and she, they should have a child. And that's that was very normal in, in the history of Israel and even in that time period. They thought a lot about what was going on for the future of that family tied to having children. And so I just think it's a very powerful thing to see. Now, why would he not do this? I'll thought one more time. In the book of Ruth, y'all remember the book of Ruth with Boaz. Boaz was not the one that was first in line. He was the second in line. And this one man said, I don't want to do this. I do not want to take her as my wife. I will not take her. And then so they made an agreement. That was one point you see this. But why would Onan not want to do this? One reason would be greed. It's a loss of inheritance. He He's not going to get his inheritance, the fullness of that. That son will get it. And so he knows that if he if, if, if his older brother has a son, that he's going to lose out. And so maybe it was greed. Now why did he not just stop and say, I'm not going to do it. Let Sheila do it. Why did he not just say, let my brother, when he grows up, have her as a wife? I mean, some of the element was like, it was very looked down upon in the culture to do something like this, to not to not serve your older brother in this way. It was very looked down on in that way. It may have been he could have done it for lust's sake, he could have done it for a lot of different reasons, but you just see this kind of unpack. Now the Lord watches this and he's seeing this. And I just need to stop and just say what you do in secret and that no one else knows about, the Lord knows it. I mean, what's done in your mind. The Lord knows it. What's done in a dark room, the Lord knows it. What's done when no one else is around, the Lord knows it. He is not blind. You remember Jonah said, Even when I was at the bottom of the ocean, the Lord could see me. And so there's an awareness that even though his father never knew about his sin, God did. He is accountable for the things that are never seen by someone else. As you note this, I think it's important. You you might say in your secret sins of anger, lust, and envy that run deep in your heart that no one will ever, ever hear about it, never know about it. The reality is we usually reveal those things. If you harbor anger and lust and, and envy in your heart, it usually comes out over time. But I just think it's important just to, to remind yourself that the Lord knows the secret things. Now Judah, listen. Judah says, "I'm so, I'm scared for my youngest son." I mean, like in his mind, it's this woman that's trying to destroy his whole family. So he sends her away and says, "Hey, I'll call you when he gets old enough," with the intention that he would never call her again. And so he deceives her in that way. It's very powerful. But another thing I just was thinking about this week is with a family. And I think it's just important to stop here just for a moment to think. Judah's sons, again, are I think in many ways are following in his footsteps. They really are. But again, they've exceeded that even more. I think it's just important just to note that because children rarely go a different way than their parents. If a parent loves money, whether, whether or not they have money, oftentimes their kids will follow in that. If parents are selfish and they use their time and resources for themselves, their children often will follow that. If a parent is boastful and arrogant, if they're self-serving, if they're not friendly to others, if they're not seeking to build relationships with other people, but they are so self-contained, they're never stepping out and reaching out to other people, their children will usually follow that. If they're a people pleaser and want to be accepted by others and put that at a higher level than being accepted by God, their parents usually, I mean, their children usually follow that. That's a dangerous place to be. On the other hand, if you're generous with your time and money, if you're humble and teachable, if you're selfless and put others above yourself, if you love the truth, if you're hospitable to others and you open your home, if you're friendly and you overcome your selfish fear, if you, if, if, you, if you love people for who they are and what they can do for you, they'll usually follow that. It's proverbial in nature. It's not a promise. They don't always do so. But the the, the tr- trajectory of one's life usually has a way of coming around towards the way of the parent. Now, I just think it's important to stop there and say, Judas set an example for his boys and they ran with that. And that's pretty astonishing stop and ponder and ask ourselves where we are now verse 12 as we move forward now we're probably moving forward like 20 years in verse 12 because you just got to think from from the start of the chapter from the very beginning of the chapter when Judah kind of went away and then and then to this point it's probably somewhere around 20 years he's had three sons they've grown up they've married all those things are kind of taking place the youngest one is now older. And so in verse 12, In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to, sh- to his sheep shearers. He and his friend hired the Adolamite. Now, what do we learn? His wife passes away. Judah's wife passed away. He has this time of comfort. A time. Of, it's funny. Tamar's been in this period of long period of time wearing black, being with her father, staying in the house. Judah, At some. I mean, there may have been a certain amount of time he was supposed to mourn. He's ready to do that, but now he's ready to party. Timnah is like going to a cattle town. When the cowboys have been out running the, the cattle for so long, they are waiting for pay. And when they get the pay, they want to go into town and have a good time. They hit the bar, they hit the brothel, they hit they hit all these places. And I mean, we've, we've watched those movies over and over and over again, and that's kind of what takes place. Now, when it's time to shear sheep, that's the place that the, the the sheep shearer, he's waiting for his time to get outside of just walking around following sheep to get into the city so he can do all sorts of wickedness. He's heading that way. And I just think it's important to stop there. Then in verses 13 and 14, when Tamar, his his daughter-in-law hears that he's heading towards the town where he's going to be sheep shearing. It's interesting. Her first response is to think, well, I know what he's done. He's never really done what he said he would do. He's not going to give me a son, and so I'm going to change my clothes. And I'm going to do what I know, I'm going to try to tempt Judah to do the thing that he naturally does. It's almost like saying, I know what Judah's about to do, and so if I can kind of step in there and and I know he's going to go, that's what he does. He pursues maybe prostitutes that may be in something very normal for him. And so she says that's what she's going to do. She changes her clothes and she dresses up in a way that would say, I, I am looking for a man to come and pay me for services. As you move forward here in verses 15 through 19, when Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because her face was covered and he turned aside to the road and he 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 asks her, he kind of solicits her. And when he does so, she begins to they begin to dialogue, dialogue back and forth. And what she says is, What are you going to give me? He says, Oh, I'll send you a, like a, a little sheep. I'm going to send that to you, a little goat or whatever. I'm going to send that to you. And he's like, she's like, Well, that's not enough, Judah. You need to give me something that will say you're going to fulfill your obligation. And he says, What shall I give you? And he says, and, and she says, You give me the things. that that, like everyone would know that you, that it's yours. Give me something that identifies who you are. The idea here of a signet and a cord and a staff, the signet was something like a cylinder kind of object that they could roll across at different times. I mean, there different times in history, maybe you've seen kings where they stamp things, and when they stamp that signet ring in, it says, hey, this is from the king. He's the only one wearing it. Well, this thing would, would be worn around his neck, he could roll it over; it would have his sign on it, and it was like it was—it was his family that everybody knew. That was Judah, It was his family. There was a certain seal that said, "This is Judas." His staff was a kind of a thing of prominence, and it also usually had something on the top of it that would kind of describe, "This is Judas." It was his identity. It, it was one of those things. It was like uh, if he—it was like he's good for whatever is placed in there. That kind of reveals that he is set himself up for say like i made an agreement with someone i mark it it's his and so i think it's important to say that it's almost like a man who leaves his driver's license at a brothel along with his credit card and everything in his wallet that reveals who he is and i think it's just kind of important to see it's a symbol of, of, of everything that said this is him now here's the thing what she's doing here is wrong but at the same time, it, she's the one that's going to preserve the promise for Judah and his family. That's a very powerful thing. We'll talk about that in a little bit further. But look at verses 20-23. through 23. So Judah sends back his friend and says, go take the, the, the goat back. And he gets over there and his friend takes it back and there's no lady there. The woman's not there. They can't find her in any way. And Judah says, well, after he gets back, he says, look, don't say anything about it because people will be making fun of us. We don't want to be in that kind of situation. We don't want our reputation destroyed, just kind of keep it quiet. I don't really I don't want anything to happen that would kinda get this out. Then in verses twenty four through twenty six, Judah gets a word that Tamar is pregnant. But he ends up confessing his own sin in the process. Now, in verse twenty four, about three months after or later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter in law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. She's done she she is she has had a sexual relationship outside of marriage but even more so this it's even greater in its immorality because she's been a prostitute and become pregnant i think it's important you note that because it's a very kind of it's a powerful picture as you unfold this and what takes place is he says about her bring her out to be burned his first response is i want her to be burned he is angry and he desires for justice to be done He wants her destroyed. He wants her to face a a very horrible death, the worst of deaths. I want her to be brought out and be burned. She would be brought up to the city gate and they would pronounce a judgment on her and she would be set on fire. That's what he says. Does that bother you? Did he not think that three months ago he was doing the same thing? How, how would He miss that? Have you ever done that with someone? Someone who hurt you in some way? You are so angry. You were like, I hope they're judged for that. I hope they get what's coming to them. I hope that they get it and I hope it is worse than I could even imagine what they should receive for their sins. Maybe you've done it in a lighter way. Maybe someone's offended you and you're like, I hope they get fired. I hope they're thrown under the bus. I hope that those people get what's coming to them at my school or whatever it might be. You could think of all the different things. You know, it's much easier to point a finger rather than to look in the mirror. Do you know that? It is so easy to point out other people's sins Jesus said why do you look at one person's sins and you point those out and, and and then you've got this log in your eye and you want to get out this thing in theirs and you see it all the time in the workplace you see it all the time in a family you see it all the time in schools you see it everywhere that people can find all the different things wrong with someone else but they never stop to look into the mirror and see themselves Is that frightening they are justified. He thinks he's justified in his anger. But what does she do? She says, Okay, on the way to her death, the man who gave me these things is the man who got me pregnant. When Judah sees those things, all knew that Judah was the guilty. She says, please identify who who's these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. In verse 26, Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila and he did not know her again. So what does he do? He stops and there's this one glimpse of Repentance. It's not the last time in Judah's life that we're going to see a heart of repentance, a heart or desire for change, a heart to turn away, a heart to see Himself in the mirror as He is. It's not the only time that that's going to happen. He will be faced with His sin again. And He says, she is more righteous than I. Really, she is the one ultimately that's going to preserve what God has in store for the people of God. That's hard to believe sometimes, but it's a very powerful thing. Though Judah has sinned greatly, the Lord is working in his life. Some of you might say, that's partly my story. It's part of all of our stories. There are things in our lives that we think, why did this happen or that happen? Why did I do this or do that? At every age, you could go back, if you could remember all the things that you had done, you would say, there are so many times that the person who I would have condemned, it was more righteous than I. A very powerful thing. Now, verses 27 through 30, we find out that she goes into labor. Tamar's about to have these children. One pops out early. He's marked. There's a thread th- wrapped around his arm. And then he comes back in and this other child comes out. And ultimately, you see there's two children born. two uh, These twin boys that come out. But what we're going to find out is you kind of unpack that. You say, well, how's this all put together? Why is this story here? Well, it's all found in these last three verses and we're going to see that as we move ahead but I want you to turn to Genesis 49 turn to Genesis 49 we're going to look at this passage just quickly and, and what, what I want you to see this is this is the deal at the very end of Jacob's life he pronounces a blessing over his sons I mean some of them don't seem so much like a blessing but he pronounces kind of a future over them and, and it, with Judah, this is what he says in, in Genesis 49, verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Then in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's uh, staff from between his feet until until tribute comes to him. Some people would say until Shiloh comes. Some passages, as you unpack that, it's the idea of peace and he and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now here's the point. Judah's line is preserved through this Gentile woman doing something you would not want to say that was done. And Judah is blessed with that. It's a very powerful thing. But not only that, as you're moving forward in that, you also see that God's going to say through the father Jacob that Judah, you you will be over your brothers. Not only that, you're going to have the place, the scepter, The place of authority among your brothers. Uh, You're going to have that until Shiloh comes. Really until Jesus comes. Most people would understand that that is speaking forward to that day. Now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter one. If you can get there real quick, I just want you to put this together in your mind. In Matthew chapter one and verse one, where Matthew begins to say, Here is the genealogy of the Christ. Here's the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter one, verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. What's going to happen here? He's saying Judah's line is the messianic line. Judah's line is the place where Jesus comes from. Through Judah came King David, and through King David, Jesus and all along the way, this is God's plan for him. And you say, How in the world? This is such a messed up situation. This is such a dark story. And not only that, this there's this Canaanite woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus and all of those things, it's this humiliation and this brokenness, the Christ has come. It's very backwards to what we would think. Now, there's a number of things you see in this text as we kind of conclude today. One, sin has consequences. One sin leads to another and they affect others. There's not like getting past that. I think it's important just to note that there's consequences to sin and we see this very clearly. The other thing is, is to say that the sin of others are often exaggerated in our minds while ours are minimized. I think that's something very clear here. We have a way of looking at other people's sin as greater than our own. And we love to tell each other about it. And we sit around with groups of people and say, look how sinful they are and how we're really not. Sometimes we even do that with our government. Or whoever. You have all these lists of sins that other people have committed when you don't stop to look at your own self. Third thing, God uses these circumstances to help Judas see his own sin and confess that he was not righteous. God has a way of breaking him. God is not through with Judah. Even though Judah sinned greatly, God says, no, I'm not through with him. I have set him apart to be my child and I'm going to bring him to myself at whatever cost. And he does so. And and Judah shows a sign of repentance here, but he's going to show it even more so later with his brother Joseph and his brother Benjamin as we unpack the story. God is accomplishing His plan in his life. The fourth thing, God's plan for Judah was not thwarted but preserved in spite of him. And it was done through a woman who would be completely the most la- last person on the planet that you would think God is preserving His promise. He is doing this work and he's going to use Judah and His lineage to bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth. I think the last thing would be God has a place for you and me. Do you know that? She was a Gentile. You are Gentile. She was outside of the promised people and God brought her into those people. She is among them. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, the, one of the biggest themes in Matthew is that the, the, the salvation comes by faith and the people that were believing in Matthew were the Gentile people. They were coming into the people of God. They were participating in the promises of God. They're getting to experience the grace of God. They know Him. They're experiencing His work in their life. And so in this story, in Genesis 38, there's a lot of things going on there. Most importantly, you see the work of God preserving the promise in spite of His rebellious people, and we see it today. And we should praise God and honor Him and give thanks to Him for the great and mighty things He has done done, both in the life of Judas sending the Christ, the one in whom we have salvation and in our own lives as we have experienced that because he didn't keep us far away, but he drew near to a wicked and rebellious people and he's drawing them out from every tribe and tongue and nation and you may be one today who have never entered in to the promises of God by trusting in God's Messiah who came and lived the life that you never could live and died the death that you deserved so that you could have salvation in Him. You may say, man, I'm pretty bad. You don't know what goes on in my heart. This man's heart is thrown out there so that you might see that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this Word. We thank You that You do not hide from us the darkness, the sinfulness, the rebellion of people that You're going to save. But You allow us to see it in Your Word so that we might know that salvation is by Your grace only. And we praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we would see that, savor that, and come under your authority and repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone to save us. Humble us today that we might be saved. In Christ's name.